20, 25, maybe 30,000 girls every single day under the age of 18 are forced into an illegal. And girls who are married under the age of 18 will be sexually abused. It's by definition and by law, statutory rape in their country. Many of these girls will be physically abused by their husband because they're young, they're uneducated, they're vulnerable, no one can speak up for them. They're going to drop out of school, they'll never have a chance to finish their education or reach their dreams. They're more likely than women in their 20s or 30s to have miscarriages, to have serious complications when they have babies, to die in childbirth. Their children will be less healthy than women who give birth in their 20s or 30s. Their kids will be uneducated, those that live, and they'll continue on and on and on, the female cycle of poverty. This is the world we live in. In the time I've been talking, 10 more girls, 10 little girls, some of them 12, 13, 14 years old. And most Christians don't really know about this issue of child marriage. In the last 15 years that I've been working as a lawyer and doing some work with my organization, everyone who knows about human trafficking and sex slavery, forced prostitution, terrible, horrific stuff. Important that Christians are working on that, and non-Christians too. But the issue of child marriage, which we confront in Bangladesh, is something numerically at least five or ten times bigger. Every few seconds. And every time I talk to people, I tell my girls in Bangladesh, they call me Troy uncle. All my hundreds of these little girls, I say, I'm going to tell everyone I can in America about what it's like for girls in Bangladesh. But not just the difficult things, but also the hopeful things. Because if you empower and educate and love these girls who are discriminated against, who are considered nothing more than just the value for their body, you can change the world. And I'm going to tell you a few stories about some of my girls that are changing their life, they're changing their family, and when they go back and serve as nurses or doctors or teachers or lawyers, social workers, they're going to transform the way that their village thinks about girls and young women. And the greatest justice issue in the world today, the issue, in my opinion, of the 21st century, if you're thinking about social injustice, is the way we treat poor girls. Because everywhere you go, if you go to a poor area of Seattle, if you go to a poor area of L.A. where my office is, if you go to any slum or brothel, anywhere in the world, poor people are exploited for their bodies, for their labor. But in those places, the people that are exploited the worst are girls because they're powerless and because we as a world have decided that they're worth only their physical body. And it's my contention that if you follow Jesus, you have to care about injustice. It's not optional. We might politically look at it differently. There's different things to do. There's many different issues. But you cannot say you love Jesus, believe in this scripture, if you don't care about social injustice. The second thing, I strongly believe you cannot care about social injustice if you don't care about girls in poverty. Numerically, it's the biggest issue in the world. In terms of just moral urgency, what can be more important than us fighting for the rights of tens of millions of young girls who will be raped, sent into illegal child marriages, sent to the brothels, discriminated against just because they're girls? So I'm here to talk about these things, and not just to be heavy and intense, but these are heavy, intense, difficult things, but also to call us to do something about it. 
because there's hope even in a relatively small church to do something great. And one, I'm not going to talk about the scripture mostly, but Dave, maybe you guys can think of the scripture later sometime. Isaiah 49 is a passage that to me has been really inspirational. It's one of the servant songs where they're talking about the Messiah. And in Isaiah 49, it talks about the Messiah saying, listen, farthest islands of the world, the most distant nations, listen, God has given me the spirit to bring justice to the nations. And even inside of that scripture, it says that the Messiah is tired. He says, oh, I've worked hard. Nothing has been accomplished. I'm small. I'm puny. I'm powerless compared to those great injustices out there. And in the face of that, the scripture says, it's like God speaking to Jesus. However that works, God speaking to the Messiah. The little dreams you had are too much. Even though you're tired and overwhelmed by the small vision you have, I'm going to give you something much bigger. And he says to Jesus, it's too small of a thing for you to be the Messiah for the Jewish people. You are the Savior of the entire world. And I look at that scripture as one person or a small organization or even here a relatively small church. Your small dreams, even if those wear you out, even if that makes you overwhelmed, God says to you, oh, listen, that dream that you have that tires you out, that is small compared to the awesome thing that you're meant to do. And that's not to like load guilt onto you, like do more, be bigger, you have to do more. You, you need to rest, you need to have Sabbath, you need to have appropriate time to just don't stress about it. But at the same time, God gives you a vision of something that's a thousand times bigger. And even if Jesus in that scripture, Jesus appears tired in Isaiah 49. And God says, don't worry. I know you're tired. I know you're small. You might feel powerless, but there's something a thousand times bigger. That's a side scripture. Isaiah 49. Awesome stuff. But what I've been here to talk to you about is a scripture. Um, I'm going to talk to you about some of my girls, right? You probably want to look at that and what you do. But a scripture that to me is captures exactly Jesus' heart for justice. And um, we refer to it here a little bit. In Luke chapter 4, after Jesus, the Spirit of God comes on him. He goes out and he's tempted in the wilderness. He goes around um, the Galilee speaking in the different synagogues. And the first message that Jesus has that's recorded in the Gospels, Luke chapter 4, he goes and sits down in the synagogue in Nazareth where he was brought up. And you can imagine, he's getting famous, Luke 4 says, he's becoming famous, everyone's hearing about him. They hand him the scroll, the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah has 66 chapters, right? The, long, the biggest of all the scrolls from the, New, from the Old Testament, other than the Psalms. They hand it to him and Jesus, it says, Jesus looks through it to find which, which passage will be the topic of his first sermon to his people. He's coming home. This is his inauguration. And he's going to say, this is my main message. Now you can imagine in political season, if someone came, right? Imagine if Hillary Clinton came here, you handed her the Constitution. Whatever you think about her politics, she would look through it and make a speech based on what she thinks is important. Right? If Donald Trump came up here, he said, here's the Constitution. Speak about it to us. Whatever you think of Donald Trump, he would go through and pick a passage that he thinks, oh, this captures my people. Bernie Sanders, Barack Obama, whoever you want, whoever you, I don't even know who the senators are here. You hand them a document, say, speak from this. They would choose the part that they want to speak from. So they hand Jesus the longest scroll from the Old Testament, the most profound of all the Old Testament prophets, right? Talking about the sin of the people all the way to the redemption of Israel. And Jesus could have talked about how evil the other nations were. 
right? Some pastors like to do that. Oh, those people are terrible. That church is bad. The caves are going to hell. Whatever. All about other people. He could have chosen a scripture about that. He could have chosen a scripture that talked about Israel and its power one day. The Romans will be crushed. Our land will be great. We will be awesome again one day. Parts of that are in Isaiah. And pastors and preachers will talk about that kind of thing, right? Nationalism, how great our country is, right? There might be a place for that. But Jesus doesn't go there. He goes into the entire scroll and he says, I'm going to talk about this. Because this is the meaning of God's spirit being on Jesus. The Messiah, what all of history is waiting for. God's spirit on him with power. And he says, this is the meaning of that most profound moment. He reads it. This is in Isaiah 61. Unrolling the scroll, he found the place and he read, The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And we can read that, and the words are so beautiful, and Isaiah 58 and Isaiah 61, they're so beautiful, but we need to stop and think. Jesus consciously said, this is his number one agenda. Think of that. He's going back to talk to his family, his people, his home, and he says, the whole meaning of God's spirit on me is to release the oppressed, is to go and preach good news to the poor. This is the passage that Jesus chose. It wasn't a sign to him, oh, Jesus, will you talk about justice? Oh, yeah, I can do that. No, Jesus said, give me that longest scroll and I'm going to find this. This is the meaning of Jesus. You cannot understand Jesus if you don't think about these issues. The oppression of the poor. People who are blind and in People who are prisoners. And proclaiming good news in places of injustice. You cannot talk about Jesus without that. Now, how much of our church, the church in general around the world, just kind of ignores that or gives a few dollars here and there when Jesus says, This is the meaning? Another thing that to notice about this passage is that Jesus doesn't say the Spirit of God is on him just to bless him or make his life good or to make him happy. Certainly, the scripture is full of thousands of things that say this is the benefit and the beauty of following God. But Jesus makes very clear here that the Spirit of God is on him to give him a task, to call him to something. Even the Messiah has a job to do. And it's important to think that as followers of Jesus, anyone here that claims to follow Jesus needs to think, if you say God's Spirit is with you, which we say when we follow God, somehow the Spirit comes into us. That we have a task to do. We have a job to do. Like I mentioned in Isaiah 49, perhaps greater than you can imagine. That small thing that tires you out, God says, okay, I know you're tired. Maybe you need some rest. But the task God has for you is a thousand times grander or bigger or deeper or more profound than you can imagine. And I'm not saying this just, I'm going to share a little about my work in Bangladesh, just about girls in poverty, whatever the thing is, that God has a task for you. It's bigger and more beautiful than you can imagine. But God didn't call you and give you the spirit just to make your life nice. He actually makes your life beautiful by you going and doing the work that you're called to do. And one final thing to notice about that scripture is that Jesus did not say, I came to talk about injustice. 
not here giving a talk about injustice. But everyone loves to talk about it. Everyone wants to hear. Don't you, don't you want to hear the story about these girls? Right? I can tell you the first, those two girls, Kohili and Kakali, the first two twins in my program. Kohili, the, in the, the front row, the second one, is in 11th grade living in my dormitory. The first girl ever to go to college from her village. She should be married probably with two kids by now if we didn't intercept her. But everyone wants to talk and hear stories. And stories are beautiful and important, and I'll tell you more. But Jesus did not say, the Spirit of God is on me to talk about injustice. He did have a verbal proclamation, but that was to break the chains of injustice. And perhaps from Isaiah, the most beautiful passage, if Jesus were to choose another one, I wish he would have chosen Isaiah 58. That, he, that it says in there, don't just talk about worshiping God. God, in fact, hates your worship if you don't do justice. But he says, go and free people from oppression and break the chains of oppression so that people are not returned to oppression again. Does that make sense? It doesn't do much good, ultimately, to free one slave. It helps that person. Because in our world, if that slave or that person, another person will take their place. And this happens in Bangladesh and in India and all over the world. Not these girls, but other ones. We've helped remove some girls from the brothel. Some of them whose mothers are sex workers. Other ones who they themselves have been prostituted. But if you remove one girl, it's a beautiful thing to do. But she will be replaced. Unfortunately, this happens everywhere in the world. Unless you go and break the chains, break the system of oppression, those girls will, another one will take their place. And in Thailand, where I used to work, even some of the brothel keepers would work with the NGOs, the nonprofits, and say, take this girl because she's pregnant, she's having problems, we don't want her anymore. And it wasn't because they were being nice. It was because they knew that they could replace her with another girl. And the call of justice is not only to rescue people. It is partly that. But it's to break the very system so that no one else will be oppressed again. Right? Like we did two centuries ago. It's to end the slave trade and free the slaves. Or perhaps free the slaves first and then say no more slave trade so it cannot happen again. Free the slaves. Free people from injustice. Crush the system so it doesn't impress people again. Does that make sense? That's the call of justice. And even a small group of people can do something to free people from injustice. Now I'll tell you just a little of my story. So um, about 15 years ago, right before I went to law school, I worked with some groups in India and Thailand who were helping get girls out of the brothels. And unfortunately, there's a lot of men who look just like me who go to those places to buy young girls. And so I was, um, with some of these groups, kind of volunteered as an undercover kind of guy to go there with a camera and take pictures of these young girls. And something I had to kind of shut off my mind because it was so disturbing and kind of play a role to be in these places. And for any man who wants to be involved in these, don't do it on your own. You have to work with people. Don't go by yourself. But when I went into those places, it disturbed me so much. And I remember before the first time I went, I heard a sermon, and the guy said, when you go to places of injustice or very poor places, sometimes you won't know what to do, and you'll just cry. And the things that make you cry or actually just really deeply break your heart should be things that you listen to because God's calling you and telling you something. And I thought, oh, that's a nice theory. I, I guess I cried when my grandpa died a little bit, but I don't cry so much. But, oh, that's a nice theory for other people. But then I went into, especially in Thailand, and I saw the worst thing I could imagine, little rows of 10 and 11-year-old girls that I could buy for 10 or $15. And 
after I played my role and took pictures, he's, I went home and I just cried and cried and cried like I never had before. And I felt horrible as a man, thinking any terrible thing I've ever done to a woman who just lusted after her has contributed to the system. I felt bad as an American, a foreigner, saying we send people to these places. I felt bad as a Christian, thinking we talk about power that we have to break injustice and what are we doing? And it just made me weep. But I listened and I thought about that sermon and I thought, the point of this isn't just to cry, although you should have your heart broken, but then go do something about it. So I went to law school and I thought, I'd be an advocate. In Spanish, advocate, an advocate for the poor. I thought, one day as a lawyer, I'd be able to speak up for people. And I'm not real deep sometimes, so I thought, I want to start an organization. So I called it Speak Up, right? Proverbs 31, verses 8 and 9. Say, speak up for those who can't speak for themselves, for the rights of all or who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. And one day I saw those verses. I probably read it 50 times, but one time it hit me really deeply. And I said, oh, that's my business card. I want to speak up. And I told my mom, oh, I found this beautiful verse in Proverbs 31. And she thought, oh, I'm finally going to get married. Right? <laughs> Proverbs 31, I said, well, no, right, right before that. Right? Verses 8 and 9, right? And I could give a sermon just on that, right? This is the mother of Solomon, right? The mother who was raped by the king, whose husband was murdered, who was telling her son Solomon, right? What you should do as king is speak up for the poor. That's what it means to be king, right? Use your power on behalf of the poor. So when I set up my organization, I needed a name. I said, ah, oh, speak up for the poor. I refer to it as speak up. So we work in Bangladesh now with well over a thousand girls now who are vulnerable to being forced into child marriage. So Bangladesh is 90% Muslim country. Um, it's because of culture, some religion and culture mix and poverty that girls are considered nothing more than for many places, especially the poor, that the goal of their life is to be married. And people say, the girls are born to be married. And I always tell the girls and the young mothers, if you want to be married, it's great. Those of you who want to be housewives, that's great. If you want to have a bunch of kids, that's great. Don't have 10, right? Too many people have big families there, but that's all great. But if you're considered only good because you can clean, and have babies, and be there for the pleasure of your life, or perhaps be beaten by your husband. This is a system that needs to change. Like I told you every few seconds, perhaps it's every one minute in Bangladesh. Bangladesh, smaller than the state of Washington, has half the U.S. population, 165 million people in this small area. And because of massive overcrowding, because of culture and religious context, because of poverty, the girls are dropped out of school, the girls don't have, tend to have jobs, especially the poor women, and it's a vicious cycle where the father says, the women aren't working, so why go to school? So they don't have an education. They get married as children, and it proves their point again, and the next generation over and over again. And you look, we can look later, if you want, over there in the table, I have pictures of about 30 girls from one of the villages we work. So we run a large girls' education program, keeping the girls in school, teaching them that you were made for something much more beautiful. We have mostly Hindu girls, about 30% Muslim girls, two or three Christian girls from some of the few Christian families there. 
starting in fifth grade, saying you can stay in school, and we keep them in school all the way up into university. We have a big dormitory. If you go to one of the later pictures there, you'll see a few of the girls from my dormitory keeping them in nursing school. Some of them want to be doctors. And our goal with Speak Up is not just to talk about how horrible child marriage is, not just to do the legal work, which I'll explain in a second, but to take little girls and say to them and their family, you can have a dream and you can do something amazing. Here's my girls going to school from one of the villages. Right, that's their school bus. Can you imagine? It's like a motorcycle with this cart in the back of it. Every girl that you'll see in these pictures, and he's kind of just going through a few of these different pictures, um, every one of those, does that say, this? I think it just says to serve Bangladesh. Every one of those girls, when she's 14 or 15, would be or would have been married if we didn't intercept them and save their family. We have a different thing in mind for her. And we work with the fathers and mothers and say, your daughter's not a burden. Your daughter can have a good job. She'll marry a better man that way. She can provide for the family. Everything will be better for her if we keep her in school. This is one of the villages, a Hindu village we work, called Judihati, right? At seven, and we have about 40 girls in that village there. And one of the girls in the middle there has already been married, and we kind of stopped the marriage two days into it. And we, the police work with us, and the guy's not allowed to come back until she's 18, and we're trying to get her back into school, uh, getting her back on track. But these girls, from the day that they're born, right, I see some of the fathers who essentially, when you say, oh, it's a girl, right? And in America, it's a boy, or it's a girl. It's just, we're just saying the gender, but we love the child. And it's not that a father there doesn't love his daughter, but in many cases, because there's no future for her, or the only tradition is that she'll be married off, and he'll have to give a dowry, he'll have to pay someone to take his daughter. The dad says, oh, it's a girl, right? When they have a son, ah, my son, he's gonna build my family with me. The daughter will be given away to another family. And my goal in the broadest sense, in Bangladesh and maybe other places we go, is to just change, doing my part at least, and speak up part to change the world and change the way we think about girls in poverty. Because Jesus would certainly say that, right? He says, don't forbid the children, bring those children to me. I'm sure people in that day had the same mentality that men were considered better. Our own Bible shows that, that it clearly shows that Jesus had female disciples, but the guys are the ones who get all the credit. But it's the women, right, who are the ones who stuck around. They didn't run around, they were one or away, they are the ones who went to the tomb. Even in our own traditions, we're a bit confused about the value of women. Not that the scripture is wrong, but sometimes it reflects some of the biases of people at that day. Think of the way Jesus thought, or obviously would think, about justice issues. You know, Jesus was a refugee. Just thinking of that fact should affect the way we think about refugees, right? He was a Middle Eastern refugee. Think of that. Jesus had people, I mean, he didn't cause it, but people, thousands, perhaps hundreds of young boys were murdered in his stead, right? When they went to the village of Bethlehem and killed all the people. Jesus would have something deeply profound to say about ISIS. Deeply profound to say about the mass shootings of children in our country. Mass shooting that happened only 12 years ago, or 12 hours ago in our country, if you didn't see the news. Right? Look how Jesus chose his first sermon about justice. 
Look how Jesus treated the prostitutes. They were his friends, and people considered him a sinner because of who he hung out with. Right? Does anyone consider you weird or scandalous or kind of a sinner because you hang out with some disadvantaged people? If not, you're probably not acting like Jesus because Jesus' friends would be some of the guys in jail. Jesus hung out with people because he cared about justice. He loved the outcasts and the lepers and he touched them. And they were his friends. No wonder all of this scraggly bunch of lepers and outcasts came around him because finally one rabbi, one religious leader, would embrace them. As I mentioned, he probably had female disciples. We, talk, we see that in scripture and in the early church that there were women who were leaders. He challenged the occupiers. Right? By saying to the tax collectors, you need to change your way. And I can imagine everyone from the Occupy Wall Street people to the Tea Party people should look at the story of Jesus interacting with the tax collectors and say, Jesus had something profound to say about taxation and justice and the way society should be organized. Jesus loved the foreigners, right? He went to the foreign countries there. He even held up the Samaritans as great examples as compared to his own people. If you look at all of scriptures and all of the verses I just said were all in the book of Luke. That's one of the four gospels. Talking about Jesus' heart for outcasts, for people that others tend to hate. And even on the cross, when he was dying, Jesus told his disciples, look after my mother, who was probably quite young. She had had Jesus when she was 14, a child bride herself. He said, look out for the widows. His mom at that point was likely to win. Jesus' life is so obviously about justice. From the beginning, even when Mary, when Jesus is in her womb, says the Magnificat, these beautiful words, where she says, Because of this, Jesus' birth is a sign of the humble being lifted up and the rich being sent away. Radical, crazy verses in the beginning of Luke. So for me, as a follower of Jesus, my application of doing all this is to help girls in poverty. Because to me, it's the most intense problem in the world. I won't tell the whole story why I ended up in Bangladesh, but it's a country that has incredible meaning. Here's some girls that are in a home that speak up funds. All these girls, their mothers are currently sex workers. And we remove them from the brothel so they would end up in that place. At this age, or perhaps one or two years beyond this, they would be replacing their mothers. And in many places you go, people might have some horrible image. Oh, this woman is doing this terrible job. But no girl from birth ever would grow up wanting to do that. Even the ones in the streets of Western countries who feel empowered and say they want to do this terrible job, no one wants this job. And certainly these girls are going to grow up to be teachers, to be hopefully just normal women in society, young married women one day. All of them were destined for that kind of exploitation. And with our support of our friends, we're helping them do something better. A couple of these pictures that you might have seen here um, are ones we had the girls write on a note card what their dream was and why they wanted to stay in school. Because years ago, we talked to girls when we started our program. I said, what is your dream? I asked them in Bangla, and they didn't understand. And I said to my friends, they don't understand my simple Bangla. Right? It's so simple. I said, Tomar ki shopno. My accent is terrible, but it means, what is your dream? 
And they said to me, no, the girls understand the words. They don't understand the idea. Because no one has ever told them you can have a job or a dream. Because they know they're supposed to be married when they're 14. So instead, we taught, taught these girls to have a dream. So on the back side of that card, they've written in Bangla, the language in Bangladesh. They've written what their reason is. And I wrote in the front so that the Americans could see why they want to stay in school or what their dream for life is. And I have hundreds of these pictures saying, girls saying, I want to be a doctor, I want to be a pilot, I want to travel, I want to be a nurse. There's one here that says this girl wants to be a lawyer. Right? So I'm a lawyer out of about 25 of these young girls. But I say, ladies, one day, I can't speak the language really well, I can't practice legally in a court. But right, one day my little friend there, right, this beautiful young girl, she would be married like one or two years from now, right? I tell the girls, one day they always want to dance and sing because they like to dance and sing. I say, I'll sing a little bit, but I will dance at your wedding as long as it's a good guy, you're over 18, right? One day she'll probably be married then, which is good, it's a good situation, but she'll be one of the lawyers, right? Imagine a girl like that who knows she was supposed to be married when she was 13, when she's a lawyer fighting child marriage issues, right? I'm gonna have this awesome team one day. All I'm gonna do is train them a little, raise the money and say go and like kick butt on these people, right? Because there's hundreds of these men that roam around and they arrange these legal child marriages. And my team and I now, some of the legal work we do is throw those guys in jail. It's one of the best things we do. Um, so this is one of my future colleagues. I have about 25 of those girls. So, um, is there one more picture after this? Um, here's another one, and she said in a very simple way, my job or my vision in life is to help the poor. And one reason, like a couple years that I really had a change in my thinking, that I really just started thinking much more optimistically, was when I thought, these girls in Bangladesh or girls in poverty, they are not the problem. The problem is how foolish we are how greedy and lustful and stupid we are in the way we treat poor girls. The problem is not them. The problem is how we act. But the solution to their problem, the solution even to much of the world, are the girls themselves. And every day I see in the newspaper in Bangladesh, oh, we have a shortage of 10,000 nurses. What will we do? And I think, the prime minister says something. I say, well, talk to me. Because I have 1,000 girls that want to be nurses, right? I have your future nurses. They say there's deep corruption and we honest lawyers. And I say, talk to me. I got 25 girls, and they're not morally perfect, but these are girls who are going to do justice because they've seen terrible injustice against poor people in their country. They say, oh, all the doctors are getting educated and fleeing to the West. I say, talk to me. I know 500 girls. Little, poor, innocent young girls from the villages that want to be doctors. If we're smart enough to keep them in school and fight against the people who want to rape them and fight against the ones who want to marry them off, these girls are not the problem. The girls of Bangladesh that are very poor, the girls in any place you might go who are being exploited, are the solution to many of our problems. If we spend half of our energy exploiting the other half, we don't have much energy left. But if we use our power to uplift and empower and defend these girls, we're gonna unleash an unstoppable force. And sometimes I say, I have like this uncountable army, these girls, right? And sometimes I say, there's 200 fifth grade girls 
and they don't even understand yet, but I say, girls, one day you're going to be the teachers, right? One day you're going to be the social workers and the lawyers, and you're going to transform population. They smile and they kind of do. But four or five years later, the girls in high school, 10th and 11th grade, they come back and they say, Uncle, you really don't like child marriage. And I say, yeah, I've been saying that for five years. And they say, oh, now I see it. Right? And their heart is aligned. They want to study hard. They want to do something great. But they want to go back and serve in their village and their family. And I'm telling you, if you think strategically, not just with a broken heart, oh, it's how horrible, but also strategically, we can take these girls and protect them and save them from pain, but also unleash them to do something beautiful and awesome. And right now, my little army is small. There's 1,100 in our program, 26 villages. There's only a few of them that are even in university. But 10 years from now, when I'm totally gray, I'll come back here. And I'll tell you, I'm going to have 100 nurses there. Right? There are nurses in the poorest villages in Bangladesh. I'll have 10 or 12 doctors, a few lawyers, teachers, and social workers. And these girls are going to go back and change their country. This is how you transform the world. Certainly on a religious sense, you need the spirit of God. You need to um, tell people that God loves them. But in a practical, developmental sense, instead of oppressing these girls, empower that girl who says, my goal in life is to help them. I can tell a hundred stories. I'm going to tell one more story, and I'll give an application. I'll be done in a few minutes, all right? I'll answer questions, too, if you want. One of the greatest stories, um, I, don't, I don't have her picture there exactly, but my friend Oshtabi, just like one of these girls, who's 13 years old, a bunch of girls 13 years old had been married in her village. So we had we brought in the police to her village of Kashipur. We had a big show of force to say no more girls can be married here. And the police and the politicians and me, we all said, no more. We're going to bust you if you can do this. So, of course, a week later, Washington's dad comes to her and says, oh, this is the man you will marry this weekend. And this is how it goes. They've never met the man. She's 13 or 14. She'll get married in two days. Most of the girls, what are they going to say? They're tiny. They're powerless. Defenseless. They say, okay. And they get married. But Oshtamen, she's like my, you know, Malala in Pakistan, right? She's my little Malala. She says to her dad, no. I'm going to be a teacher. And dad says, no, no, you don't understand. This is the man. This is how it works in Bangladesh. You're getting married this weekend. She said, no. My uncle said, if you do this, you will go to jail. And the police said, if you do this, we will come and find you. And you'll go to jail. And by now, the whole village was coming around. And they listened to little tiny Oshtamein, her dad yelling and arguing. And finally, her dad backed down because there were people on her side. And she said, I'm speaking up. Not that I have great power, but because I have people with me who said I can reach my goal. And if you go on our website, there's a, like a promo video we have inside of it. She's interviewed. You can see Oshtamein. Beautiful young girl who's 15 now, still in school. And she called out her dad and said, no, I'm going to reach my goal. This is the beautiful thing that can happen. And we're just scratching the surface. 1,100 girls, we have about 500 on our waiting list. Thousands and thousands more. Millions in Bangladesh if we could reach them all. Who need people to empower them. Um, I'm going to close just with uh, uh, just a couple of thoughts on what I think as a church you should do. And just a brief application as good university guys. Right? I've done my observation, my interpretation, and analysis, application, right? So when people say, so what should I do if I care about these things? I say, well, you should be like Jesus. 
or be like what we think God is like. And we say God is omniscient. God is all-knowing. And I say the first thing you have to do is know what you're talking about. And I'm not talking just about awareness. Oh, yeah, I've heard about these horrible things in Bangkok. No, I'm talking about really understanding what's happening, happening. You don't have to pick Bangladesh. You don't necessarily have to pick girls in poverty as the issue, although I think that's the important issue of our time. But really work hard to understand about injustice. Why is it this certain way? What causes it to be this certain way? If we do this, what will happen? What's the religious impact? Why are people doing things that seem to be against their self-interest? And I could talk to you for six hours just on the logic of child marriage that I've come to understand. Because there's some logic to it, and you have to really understand it to be able then to say, here's how we're going to fight against it. And I talk with the dads, and I can list 20 reasons to them why it's foolish for them to marry their daughter. If you understand, we're not going to be quite omniscient, but we can be almost all-knowing, as knowing as much as possible. So the first thing you should do is know what you're talking about. Don't just throw out random statistics. Don't just say, oh, isn't it horrible? But know what you're talking about. The second thing we say God is all-loving. Right? What's the word for that? Omnibenevolence, um, something like that. Right? You say God is omniscient. God is all loving. But God's love is not that he had an emotional reaction to us. The scriptures in some way talk about God having emotions or feeling, but that emotion was put into action. So caring is not going home and saying, oh, I feel so bad for Bangladesh, those sad girls. Caring is not crying for the poor girls in the rock. Part of it is crying or feeling emotion. But caring is doing something. And it says in the scriptures, God's love is made manifest in this obvious, profound way that God didn't sit there and say, oh, the humans are in such bad shape. God did something. So when I say be like Jesus, know what you're talking about and care, but that care in action. And finally, it talks about God being omnipotent. God actually had the power to act. And when we talk about action, we need to know we have tremendous power to do something, not in some arrogant way, not in some way, oh, I'm an American, right? And I'm very aware of this. I know I check every box about the man, right? I'm this white, American, Protestant, Christian, male, heterosexual lawyer, right? I know in some people's mind, I'm like the man, right? Sometimes I use my power. I tell the lawyer to the policeman, you need to stop being corrupt or we're going we're gonna to bring the other police to bust you. But the way you should use your power isn't in, a, in an overbearing area but to go and uplift other people. Right? You have tremendous power to do something with your time and your money and your intellect and your resources. Just a few ways to think about acting. Focus your efforts on something instead of trying to save the world. Right? Pick some issue, pick something, pick a small country, pick this place, pick this village. If you guys want to work more with me, I'll say, here, this can be the Renew Church's village. This is the village where you will change the world. Focus on something. Don't just disperse your efforts. Or you don't accomplish much that way. Um, think about people, not programs. Now, I know my girls' education program has the most boring name ever. It's the girls' education program. Right? <laughs> it's a program, but I tell people right, that it's personal. Right? When there's about 300 girls, I knew all their names. Now I don't know all these names. These are new girls in fifth grade that joined my program this year. I know Bobby's name. 
Everyone's I don't know their names. It's not about me personally knowing their names. With my staff team, I say every one of you has to make it personal and connected. Because even though the girls have an ID number, they're not a project. They're a person that we're going to take. And these girls, I just saw them a few weeks ago. I, I tell them, every one of you, I think they want to be four, three teachers. I think one wants to be a police officer, the middle one. A lot of the girls that want to be police officers. And the one in the end, I believe, wants to be a nurse. But make it personal. And I, and I can show you some pictures of girls from a different village over there if you want. And finally, to take effective action, your action should be costly. And it should be sacrificial. And you can't say that to some people. But to Christians, I can say with full confidence, if you say you follow Jesus, your action is meant to be costly. It's meant to call you to perhaps even lose your life, but to be uncomfortable, to suffer. It's meant to be costly. And I love that, spurt, that um, song. I hadn't heard it before, Lay Me Down. It's like actually beautifully captures the attitude we should have. That it's not a horrible, depressing thing. But when we lay ourselves down, when we sacrifice, that actually God is lifted up, things are accomplished, and it actually puts us in the right place. So I would say just when you think about action, do something costly. Because if you give five bucks to something, you'll forget about it in five minutes. But if you give your life to something, like I, for me, not that I'm a perfect man, but I've given my life to these girls in Bangladesh, so I suffer. But the rejoicing is a thousand times better because they're my people. And like I'm invested and it's real and I'm in. So just a few thoughts on how you should approach the action you should take. So um, just to close, I want to um, encourage you to do something that's tangible and sacrificial about justice. I have no idea. I've, I know David and Janice, I've met a couple people. I don't know much at all where you're at as a church. But if you want to follow Jesus, you have to be honest and say, Jesus calls us to care about the injustice in our world. And the way that it's going to come alive for you, the way that it's going to feel deep and connected and beautiful for you, is if you as a church do something that's sacrificial and costly and say, this is the price we're willing to pay. We're willing to pay. We're going to lay ourselves down. And do something. And I can and I tell you, read those verses in Isaiah 49. I was thinking about just for you guys. You're a small church now, but you could do something. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's helping 10 million girls in Bangladesh. Maybe it's doing something right here in your neighborhood. I don't know. But you can do something beautiful and amazing to transform places of injustice if you're willing to pay the price. In my life, I'm making my small mark on those thousand girls or so in Bangladesh. And God willing, me and my team, my cousin Matt, and many donors like him, will help us reach tens of thousands more that we're going to transform the world. And from my little vision one day, we're going to have this whole army of girls. And the same can be true for you. If you follow Jesus, you have to care about the injustice in the world. If you care about injustice, you have to care about the way girls are abused in our world. And if you give your lives to that in a sacrificial way, you're going to see something beautiful happen for those people and for yourselves. And that's the call of the kingdom of God. Let me pray to close up. Thank you, God, for the incredible, earth-shaking stuff you have in Scripture. And thanks, Jesus, for choosing that Scripture that lets us know you have the Spirit of God 
to break the chains of injustice. Help us to understand what our role is in that and give us courage and ambition to be people that will go and just crush the systems of injustice and free people. Give us courage and passion to let go, to lay our lives down in sacrificial, costly ways so that we can uplift them. Thanks for this group here, and I pray, God, as an outsider and a visitor here, you would bless these people with confidence and courage, all the resources that they need, new members, anyone that they want to join, that they would be a great light to this north part of Seattle and to any places they choose to engage. So give us your spirit, and God, we want to be like Jesus, who had the spirit so strongly on you that we're people that just proclaim freedom and light and graciousness and beauty comes out of our lives. Please give us that spirit and be with us all today. Thanks, God. Amen.